Hello, Poddleters. Surprise! I know I said that the last episode was the end of the season, and it was, it was the end of the season, but I have a very special bonus episode for you because... This episode is sponsored by, drumroll please, Oatly. Um, This is a very exciting moment for me because I'm such a big fan of Oatly. I have it in my coffee three times a day and I just think it's really the best thing ever since anything. Um, And this episode is with my dad, who I never really thought I'd feature on the podcast, but here we go. because Oatly have a new campaign live called Help Dad and it's all about having that intergenerational conversation about making small sustainable swaps and thinking about the environment when you are cooking and buying food. So I speak to my dad about sustainable eating, about his diet, about what his relationship with food was like when he was growing up and we discuss the climate crisis, how food impacts that and lots of general chit chat. Um, I actually learned a lot from my dad this episode and I really enjoyed speaking to him. So I really hope that you enjoy listening. And as always, please do rate, review and subscribe. Bye. Hello and welcome to Adulting. Today I'm joined by Lance Forbat, who happens to be my dad. Hello, Anoni. <laughs> How are you? Um, a little bit tired. I was up till half three last night and four the other night because I was fixing my car that got flooded in Wales, which you knew about. Got it going. A few little gremlins to sort. So is it actually working? I can't, do you want to tell the story of what happened to the car? Well, basically, I was on call and going in for nine o'clock. And I'm in a village which is off a reasonable road in Wales, past Carmarthen, towards a place called Withybush. And the side road that goes to where I'm staying in a rental is a bit up and down, single lane. And I've used it regularly. And on a Wednesday, I might normally have gone to another hospital, a different route. But I was going to my normal hospital. It was a shorter route. I took it. And being a bit silly, I saw this water across the road. I thought, well, I'll just drive in a bit, see if I can do it. Realized it was too deep. Just as I realized that, the car stopped working. So I thought, blimey. The river was flooding ahead of me from a river that was under a little bridge. And obviously there was a dip before it went up onto the main road. So I hadn't realized that was that's too deep. So I reversed once I got the engine going. I was really pleased. But because the road was wet both sides, I, I couldn't tell exactly the width. And I just caught a bit of mud on the side and then ended up stuck in the mud, probably a small ditch or just soggy mud at the side of the road and couldn't move. So then the car started filling up. On the driver's side, I sat on the passenger side and it came up middle of the passenger door and as far as the middle well on the other side. Um, and so I rang the AA. They, they weren't interested because they said, you drove into the flood, although I think they probably would have done something if I had the right person. Rang the fire brigade who came from the direction I was coming to then came out with sticks and decided the water was too deep for them. So they would go the other way around and said, well, we can't rescue. We're not allowed to tow. We just make sure you're safe. So I had to wait for a taxi. And then they helped me carry stuff to the car. So I just rolled my suit trousers up, shoes and socks off, and packed everything up in the car and uh, got a taxi back to the hospital. Well, via my flat, changed everything, bought overnight clothes in case, which I didn't need in the end, and got to the hospital. Uh, so that was that day. <laughs> I can't believe it works though, because Dad sent us a video, and honestly, the water was all the way up to the hand. Like it was flooded in the car. It was in the middle of the, you know, the middle bit uh, where you step over in the rear. That was just lapping over the middle bit. So the back seat, uh, just where my briefcase was, unfortunately, on on the driver's side, got a bit damp. That's dried out now. Um, but it was a bit of a, a shock. So I had the car. Then I had to pay 
for it to be picked up by a removal company uh, to the car park at the hospital. And uh, I just uh, then managed to get the AA agreed then to relay it, and it's been relayed home on Friday. Does, and I'll be does it smell? It. it probably does. I, I, I don't know if I can smell it that I'm a bit used to it, but the heat is on the hot to dry it, and I haven't lifted the carpet, so it probably will be a bit of a muddy smell. Oh, God. Well, let's hope that that um, fixes itself. We'll have to see. But you've mentioned that a bit. I'm sure people can guess what you do, but obviously not everyone might know. So can you give us an introduction to who you are, what you do, and a little bit about you? All right. Well, I'm a, a doctor that specialises in, in hearts or cardiology, and I qualified in 1980 at St. Thomas's and did a whole series of different training jobs in and around London, and then went to Leicester for a few years for my specialty in cardiology. And after some uh, temporary sort of locum consultant works waiting for a full-time post w- went to work in Whitehaven and you remember being brought up in Cockermouth etc for schools so there seven years and then came down to Bristol area the job I did in in West Cumberland Hospital Whitehaven turned out to be a lemon so not going into too much detail I left that within a year and I've been doing independent work on and off through different NHS jobs around the country as an agency, some private work and medical legal work and some interest in telemedicine. So I monitor some patients remotely if I can, you know, find suitable ones. So this was a job that came up in Withybush in Wales. So it's a six-month job and that's what I was doing there Monday to Friday. So how have you found it? Because you've been on the front lines a bit working on the COVID wards and things. How's your year pandemic-wise how have you found that? Well, it started It started in, I was in Conquest Hospital in Hastings, and at that stage, there was no PPE, and it was started to hot up. And we were struggling to get it for any of the doctors or staff. And at one point, although they locked stuff in the cupboard in the operating theatre for heart procedures, people were actually breaking into locked cupboards to steal the PPE. The people were so worried. So that was quite traumatic. And I moved to another hospital when they couldn't extend or provide what I wanted uh, and then went uh, and had some PPE at that hospital at West Suffolk. But unfortunately, although I was well protected on the wards, the dining rooms were a mess. There's no social distancing. I think I caught COVID from there. So I had about a COVID in April, which lasted a couple of weeks. And although it wasn't severe, it knocked me back for two weeks afterwards as well. Um, mainly aches, pains, headache, fatigue and uh, a bit of tummy upset but funnily no cough no obvious loss of smell or taste and I was still doing my morning exercises and feeling better for it but it took me another two weeks to catch up in my stamina. One of the things that you was keeping you busy and that you were loving to do whilst you had COVID was doing your like me you were sending us pictures of all the meals you were eating whilst you're in isolation. Oh yeah well when, when I was in isolation yes it got to the point where there was a, a WhatsApp group for the cardiologists, and there's a bit of banter on it. So one day or two, I just sent, this is what I'm having for supper tonight, and I got a bit of feedback. So they got a picture with a comment, and they used to reply, one or two of them regularly, particularly the Irish consultant, if I put a Guinness up with it or something, or which wine I'm having. And so that, he said, you must make a book. Well, I started it, but I haven't made a monograph yet, but I thought maybe I should do a lockdown diary of my eating and exercise and covid experience for that period and when i get time maybe i will well the reason it's entertaining is because you do make quite um wild and wacky concoctions you're not very not the word not discerning but you're quite happy to eat a very weird and wonderful combination of foods together 
Well, that's because when I go to the shop and I'm buying daily, I just go and see what's on offer. And if it looks okay, I'll buy what's on offer and make something from it. If I'm desperate for something different, then I'll go and buy, the, you know, the full price food. So I was always um, sort of watching the pennies. So as you know, this podcast is sponsored by Oatly. Um, and the whole conversation is about how men of a certain age, particularly dads around your age, are probably the least likely to start making sustainable swaps to their diet. So I wanted to know, have you ever had... how old I am. Yeah, do you want to tell everyone how old you are? So I'll be 65 on the 3rd of March. That gives you an idea. So yeah, I think around that demographic are maybe the least likely. So I want to know, have you had Oatly that you can remember? I think you give me some from our fridge at one time and I had it, I think, in a drink, but not on a cereal or anything. So what do you think? Have you thought, have your mum ever spoken about um, making sustainable swaps, like changing things to plant-based in your diet at all? Is it not something you've thought about? Well, I have actually. um, Since uh, probably the break point, when I started doing touch rugby and also after Anthony died, I decided to get fitter. But I've also... um, tend to when I'm at work have a vegetarian meal in the daytime two or three times a week so if I cook a meat in the evening so I've quite enjoyed having the the veggie type lunchtime meals in the hospitals if they're reasonable and then I I have a a less meat diet during the week I tend to eat fish twice at least a week if I can and uh, the rest I do like red meat and and steaks which are medium rare and that sort of stuff Um, but I am aware of of cows and methane and the environments and all that but not really made the change so much for that immediately as an individual it's more for my own health side of things so anthony just to clarify is my uncle is your brother who sadly passed away was it three years ago now yeah he 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 died on the i think it was the the, the 12th of uh, of june uh 19 2019 18 I think yeah so yeah his birthday coming up just, to three years yeah his birthday was the 27th December so he was 14 months older than me so he looked two years older for a month or two and then we I catch up be a year younger than him so that's interesting that you obviously that impacted how you were viewing life and how you then suddenly thought because you really have made kind of big changes in terms of trying to be really you were always quite fit but you do lots of exercise now so you were willing well, to sort of that, it was, yeah the, the, the first bit was just um when uh, Emily uh, got interested in a rugby player and I thought oh, I fancy doing a bit of rugby and I joined <laughs> UWE in Bristol for £25. Mum thought I was mad. But I went once a week but it was on AstroTurf and I pulled muscles and ached afterwards. We used to come to Pizza Hut, in uh, Pizza Express rather, in, in Clifton afterwards at nine-ish so that we could have a meal together. But I'd be limping out the car and waddling and then I did a couple of times when I was working away from home on sandy rather than wet astroturf slipped badly and pulled a tendon and calf muscles so I decided to do some exercises so I asked Joe who said do calf reps and I just built up from there with resistance bands and medicine balls and sit-ups and and then Anthony died and I thought well I just I just you only got one body and he was fit and could swim more than I could and he, he died of that and I just thought well I'll just you look after my body more and enjoy the sport that I can do when it's not lockdown. So, so that's how it sort of went. And then eating away from home myself, choosing stuff every day, it was a bit hodgepodge, as you say. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I like doing that. Past is the time in the evening when you're on your own listening to the radio. 
So why is it that you think that you, you choose the vegetarian meal at lunch when you're at work? Is that because you think it's generally a bit healthier or because you were thinking I could swap out a meal here and, and maybe cut down a bit on my meat consumption? Well, I I just thought some of them were tastier than I expected. And I, so I thought it would experiment. So I would have a look and see if it, if it didn't look very nice. But if there's a, a you know, a, anything vegetarian, lasagna or quiche things or, or whatever that was on offer I'd sample it and if it was good then it was great and certainly the ones with pulses and nuts if they do those they're quite nice and so it's you know there would be various dishes at different hospitals I'd try um, and then if if I had slightly smaller lunch than I would I could eat more in the evening especially if I had a pint of beer or a couple of glasses of wine because the calories in that so I, I tend to eat a bit less at lunchtime uh, but always had the same breakfast um, for years, I've had two shredded wheat milk and half a banana sliced on it, and my own apple juice I make from home if I've got it, and a cup of tea or two. So that's the morning <laughs> and lunch is sort of a middle bit, and then the evening I will have one course normally, um, but occasionally if I'm home we might have a pudding if Mum does it. You know, you'll cut down quite a lot on meat, especially because when we were younger, I think you would definitely have lots of kind of meats and cold meats and cheeses for lunches when you're at home wouldn't you yes I mean I still have cheese and biscuits as a starter when I get back from work while I'm waiting to cook something or listen to the news so I will have that but uh, as children we had school free school milk there was five of us in the children so we always had that third of a pint of silver top uh, or you could have red top but we had silver top and it was left out in metal crates and if you weren't out on the right time there'd be holes in the top from the sparrows pecking into the milk through the silver top cover wow Um, and if you got if you got gold top of course you had the cream on the top so you you got extra cream so we had quite a lot of calcium supplements in terms of milk every day at school Um, and we had free school meals because of five children at that time so would you think that now in terms of like swapping out certain dairy products for instance having like oatly oat drink or they do actually have um alternatives to creme fraiche which i love would you consider that or would would you feel resistant to changing a few bits of cheese and dairy if it tasted all right i would i mean some of the corn stuff i haven't been that impressed with when i tried it i did try (laughs) burger once it was cheap in the on on a sort of the sell by date gone on Astro or somewhere, and I was a bit disappointed. And it said Lady Burger. It was a bit of a damp squib that one, so I wasn't going to buy that one again. Um, maybe that's why it's so cheap. But you know, if something is made well and has flavour, then I don't have a problem um, in in mixing it up a bit. But I wouldn't necessarily go vegetarian or vegan. No, I don't think it's about, I'm not vegetarian or vegan. I think what's really important is about everyone doing like small changes. So I don't have dairy milk ever because I love oat drink and just have oatly. Um, And then I try, I do similar to you and don't have meat in a lot of my lunches. Um, But I'm definitely not vegan and I I don't think that that's ever suitable for everyone. Do you think that in terms of like calcium, would you be worried about not getting, like being deficient in things? Is that something that would also stop you, do you think? Uh, well, I'm outside a lot, so uh, unless it's you know really dismal, I'm getting vitamin D through that, um, through the sun. Calcium, uh, I don't know if uh, I'd be deficient with my current diet, even if I swapped a bit out, but there are lots of foods with calcium in it. Uh, and obviously milk, I just like the flavour of the semi-skimmed. I don't like the, the, the full-skim milk, and 
I've gone off the full milk simply because of the fat content and the benefits uh, to reduce your fat intake. So I want to know, because I actually think that even though my generation are quite good at making sustainable swaps, I think often we can be a bit more wasteful. So like Matt and I have a subscription to a wonky veg box thing, which is really good because it means that you don't waste veg and you get like um, the things that wouldn't have been sold in the supermarket. But I think that in terms of having an abundance to be able to buy everything, whilst we might buy more sustainably, when you were growing up, I seem to remember Nana and Papa never ever wasting food and there would always be bits of stuff in the fridge that had been foiled up and do you think that's true well, do you think more that- than that you see that they were in the war don't forget and there was rationing so um a jar of jam or marmalade or anything in a jar wouldn't um, be thrown away until you'd scraped every last bit out with a knife at the bottom and i still do that scrape jars out until i got the last bit out before i throw it away or wash it so i don't like leaving waste at the bottom and then Anything left over, like bread, would be bread pudding. We'd have fried uh, bread in, in dripping. We used to have the fat off the cooking that would be kept in a bowl in the fridge. It would go hard, and that would be dripping. And you'd have fried bread in dripping with fried eggs on top or something like that. That sounds really yummy. What other things do you have when you're growing up that you would – would you eat that now? Or would you be too worried about how f- high fat well, it is? I probably would occasionally for fun, yeah. But I, I, I wouldn't have dripping on bread regularly. But, you know, fried bread and marmalade is the other thing that people used to have. Um, but we had lots of veg- potato. I mean, we used to have a thing called a pressure cooker, and we had a potato peeler that mum used to have a lid and a handle on, and you could just put all the potatoes in and turn it around. It had little blades, like a lawnmower blade, that would cut, peel the potatoes. So she used to do pressure cooker stews and meals very quickly. Potatoes cook very quickly, five or six minutes in a pressure cooker. Then she'd do uh, casseroles, a lot of casseroles, um, she also made that rockok grumpy, the Hungarian dish with lead, ham, egg, and and cream and mashed potato, which she made. Uh, lead, sliced potato, and then sort of in the three layers, keep going till you fill the the thing up. That was quite fun. Um, bacon and eggs. We always had eggs. Go to work on an egg. It was an advert when we were young, which you may not have heard of, but. We had eggs regularly, quite a lot, and with five of us, you know, we could eat three dozen eggs without thinking in a day. Um, so there was quite a lot of bread as boys growing up, had lots of bread. Tended all to be white bread, I think, from memory. Um, and crumpets, crumpets were common. Even when we were growing up and we'd go to your family with all our cousins, there would always, the bread would go within like five minutes because there's so many of us and you would have to really well, like get like, front of that's right. Boys will eat a loaf of bread when they're growing up uh, in a day or in a meal. Yeah. So but I sometimes what? buy, a, a, um, you know, when you go to Waitrose and you're hungry and it's lunchtime, I buy those um, olive breadsticks, you know, the best eels of olive and eat half one of those on the way home because you can eat that neat. It's quite nice. <laughs> But I want to know more about like growing up with Nana and Popper and like what, especially because Popper was evacuated and obviously that's quite like a tumultuous childhood. And I remember reading, he wrote a book called Evacuee Boys and he always wanted sweets. And like the difference between the ease with which I can go out to the shop and buy cuisine from all over the world compared to how you grew up. Does it like, do you just get used to that gradually or do you still find it quite shocking that you can kind of go and buy like a bow bun? I, well, I didn't really notice the change as going up, you know, as we got older. I mean, that we had been abroad, we've been to Italy and Spain and, and countries and eaten food abroad and dad travelled around the world a lot with his business. So 
you know, having different foods in America and that. So he used to introduce us to things. I mean, I always remember he was away for six years in a row on my birthday when I was between sort of seven or eight and my early teens. And he always bring stuff back. And invariably, we'd go for a T-bone steak until uh, I was full to the brim and go and watch a James Bond film or something, or whichever way around it was. So he'd, he'd bring that into it. But I didn't notice a sudden change, think, oh, gosh, since I've left home at home, I think we had quite a balanced diet with mum as a good cook. So we had quite tasty food and casseroles you can make with all sorts of flavours. Um, not curries very much, funnily enough. Well, you and mum love curry. You always make curries, don't you? Well, yeah, well, mum, mum's more curry than me. Um, sometimes I find it upsets me about if I have a too strong one. So I don't have it <coughs> on the day before I drive three hours in a car. Um, but... Uh, <gasps> I do like curries, um, and we used to do takeaway or eat out curries, but now we prefer making our own, uh, and certainly chicken curry. But in India, I like the curries completely different. What's it like in India? Well, in India, from north to south, it goes from more meat in the north to vegetarian right in the south. And the the curries are, are made a much longer period in preparation. The spices and the flavours are much more there than the heat although they get hotter as you go further south in terms of the amount of spice they put in it. But you get a complete different feel to the ones you get in the sort of restaurants here, although some are good. You don't still get the same type of food. When you were in South India and you were having mm. – did you always have vegetarian curries there? Uh, I think they produced vegetarian. It was off banana leaves in Kerala. I, um, I remember eating off banana leaves with rice and no utensils, just your hands um and that was i was only there a short while traveling around and i was um doing uh, in the second year of my medical school had a project and then at the end travel around india but did you at that because some people even matt's quite like this sometimes he doesn't always think a meal is a proper meal unless it's got a bit of meat at that age even were you kind of like oh i wish i had some chicken or have you always been quite accepting of food just as it is oh it yeah, I mean, it was a bit disappointing when I was in Ludhiana in the medical school uh, and the digs, they'd just give you a pile of chapatis about three inches, four inches high and <laughs> some soup stock. Um, so, uh, and there was some meat in that. But when I was eating uh, vegetarian stuff in the South, it, it, it was a good quantity. It didn't worry me. But uh, So it was only short periods, you see, a few days here and there in each place. So it, it wasn't as if it had a major impact. So do you think that's what it is? Because I think that's a big part of people not wanting to move to plant bases. They think it's not going to be satiating because I feel like the meat, especially in the UK, meat and two veg and some potatoes is such a staple meal. Do you feel that you can get sufficiently full of something? Um, I'm sure I've made you and mum like a vegan meal once when I came home from uni. Do you remember? And it was... Well, I, I say, yeah, but I mean, I do. I, I like, uh, uh, if you do a, a nicely balanced um, mixture of vegetables or pulses or things together and get the flavors right then it's, it, it fills you up and it tastes nice and you don't feel have a problem it's just occasionally you'd like fancy a steak you see or a, a, a nice fish and chips every so often that's something you might want um and so i don't have a particular problem with mixing matching but i i can't see myself you know going much further than i am currently i mean i'm reasonably balanced diet and i'm doing exercise the milk bit, I like the flavour of, and I haven't thought of changing from milk, to be honest, um, although I've sampled other milk. Um, I think almond milk I tried once as well, which I'm not sure that suited my palate as much. 
But do you think that I think the thing is, it's I would definitely think that oatly in tea, I can't tell that it's not milk. And I think it's such an easy thing to change in terms of it's to me feels like the less, least drastic change that you can make. And it's not about, as well, I said, it's like, it. well, maybe we'll have to do a taste test once this pandemic is now, over. You know that when you make tea, I reckon you can tell the difference if you make the tea in the pot and pour the milk in first than if you make the tea in the cup and add the milk afterwards, which tastes different. Well, I which way? Tea in a cup. I know you do because so you'll make a way, pot. Okay. So, well, if I don't, I'll have two cups and put tea in one cup, milk in the other, and pour it across. So <laughs> scientifically, it, 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 the new scientist did something when I was a student, saying how it changes the milk when you when you heat it into hot tea, uh, as opposed to pouring tea onto the milk, and you get a different uh, molecular change that affects the taste. Really? Texture. So I think, yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. They I never knew that. You shouldn't make coffee with boiling water. They say it should be less than boiling. It changes the, the flavour. Whereas tea needs to be boiled to get the tea leaves to elute the tea flavour from them. So there is a difference I've read between the two. That does make sense because I think with coffee, you burn the coffee if you do it with boiling water. Yeah, although I don't know how it works with percolated coffee or coffee grinder, whether they're different. Yeah, maybe they're not the same. Okay, I want to tell you this because I think this is interesting. I didn't know this. So basically, you know that the new Paris Agreement, which the US has thankfully re-signed up to, is that um, we need to get the the global warming to well below two degrees. But in order for this to happen, it means that our lunches and dinners should not generate a higher climate impact than 0.5 kilograms, (laughs) not 0.5 kg CO2 emissions per meal. But one portion of spaghetti bolognese has a carbon footprint of three kilograms of CO2. Does When you hear statistics like that, like how incentivized do you feel? I think because the other thing is with your generation, well, not to be rude, but you are closer to the end <laughs> than someone who's like 15. Do you think that that changes? Like yeah, how do you people have family. You know, you might you might think about your children and grandchildren if uh, and looking at the climate change, what's going on now. I mean, one of the problems is we need to sort out cows and their methane and carbon capture, which is another thing that's coming on. And there are things that, that may come in to, to mitigate that. But in terms of the the world production, the difficulty is everyone probably thinks, well, we can do it here in England. But you look at the third world countries, which are generating so much of the greenhouse gases people feel well it's a waste of their time i I think that's a lot of attitude unless everyone's doing it they feel they're not making an impact i don't think that's true i'm sure that we and also if if like the global south are the ones creating the carbon emissions it's because we consume so much in the uk and and richer countries that's produced in those places so actually there might be higher carbon emissions but it's actually because we are buying fruits vegetables and clothes from those places so actually our consumption directly impacts that CO2. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, the consumption what I'm saying is in in your own backyard. I mean, obviously, farming with with cattle, particularly around the world, and it has an effect on deforestation as well if they're needing the, the grazing land. So, I mean, but the states have a, a massive, for example, mm. uh, meat production side of it. Um, uh, but we also have the same, and you'd have to switch comp- quite a big amount of the. Um, way people eat in in the western world uh, to make a big difference there unless you've got some other mechanism of curtailing it um 
obviously the interesting thing has been the reduction in admissions during the lockdowns in the cities and towns. So there's less pollution in the air for health at a local level. Um, and the carbon emissions themselves will have reduced the um, atmospheric carbon to some degree. But I don't know if that uh, stays like that for a period where it makes a big impact in, in the short term. Yeah, I know that is really, and it does make you wonder if people, I mean, obviously some people have to get to work and like you drive quite far because you have to commute. But in terms of people taking really long haul flights really regularly, I wonder if this will change some people's attitudes and realize that, you know, you don't, there's a lot of things to be found in the comfort of your own home. You don't have to go so far afield. Well, I think that's true, although I suspect in the next 10 to 15 years there will be almost carbon neutral flights if they get electric or, or other forms of um, propulsion engines up. I mean, the engines are getting cleaner, but there's no doubt with Heathrow and Gatwick shut, there's a massive difference around the world in all the other areas in emissions. But uh, there's implications from the people in the industry when you read the old newspaper article that that may change and change the dynamics. It's a question of how long is this rise of one or two degrees that we're seeing going to keep going um, before those things kick in? And then how do you change a very big population, often who are unable to, to see how to purchase cheaply good food mm -hmm. and they're spending money on processed and other food, uh, which may or may not, I'm not sure about the carbon footprint, but it's unhealthy. And obesity is a problem for that. I know, but that's difficult because a lot of that is tied into factors to do with like socioeconomic issues and um, like people not having a good educational baseline understanding of food. That comes from a real place of privilege. So we think a lot of that it's is... Cool. We used to have it, you see. Uh, the, the girls did, not the boys. They used to have lessons in cooking. I forgot what it's called now. And, and uh, you know, homekeeping and that sort of stuff. And that's so sexist. That happens in school. Well, it does. No, you have but that's what happened. I know, no, no, I know, but that's how the schools run it. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but but there used to be that, and the boys used to go and do woodwork or something. You know, that, that's how it used yeah. to be, and it was it was gender orientated. But that's that's the facts of life. Then what I'm saying is that even if boys were doing it, then nobody seems to be doing it at school now. I mean, even well, in zoology, we were cooking stuff to see what happened to starch and you know that sort of thing in our lessons as uh, the whole class you do learn you do have like food tech education but it's like not everyone first of all has an access to an education that's the first thing and um i don't know i think that's a very separate issue that's it's a very tricky place to get to because it comes down to i would say kind of government legislation not being strong enough or perhaps well, I, making... I think it's a price it's driven by price you see so you know if you can get a, a cheap takeaway or, or, or whatever drive-through meal uh, you'd have to think hard if you're not educated that you can do better with a bag of rice and some uh, vegetables and you know some mints or something whatever from the supermarket and do it still at the same price but you have to have the uh, knowledge of, that you can deal with that and the time factor maybe people think it, it's too difficult but a lot of people prepare meals uh, when they're not busy and put them in the freezer and then they just use them when they need them so you can make time efficient use of food that way yeah that's true but then you also might have you know a single mum with four children and she probably the best option for her might just be to go to mcdonald's you know sometimes there's lots of factors um, well, 
What were you going to say? Single mum. You see, my when dad he used way months on business, travelling around the states and places. So, mum was looking after five of us on her own for weeks on end, and she managed to. But don't forget, she had the wartime experience and being frugal and buying stuff and making things go longer distances by not waste. So, but she, she had the educational background and the experience to do it. But she was yeah. effectively a single mum on and off. You know, I wanted to go back to what you said earlier because I think it's a really common idea that you know, everyone feels like, oh my God, it's such a big task to take on. I personally don't want to go vegan, so there's no point. And that's how I used to view it. I used to think, well, if I don't buy a steak from Sainsbury's, that steak is still going to be on the shelf. But really, the more we vote with our wallet as consumers, for instance, Matt and I not buying um, dairy milk and having Oatly instead, which I would say like 90% of my friends do as well. We've all kind of converted. That will hugely change the um, supply and demand for meat and dairy products. So I think that it's more about everyone making really small changes. I think even you having your vegetarian lunches is amazing. If Imagine if everyone in your hospital did that instead of choosing the meat option, that would have a drastic drastic impact. So I think that's another problem is people see it as too big of a task to take on and that they personally can't solve it. But it's more about everyone coming together and doing a little bit to make a big change. I mean, they do offer in the hospitals this mixture, which is which is good. So it's not like school dinners, you get one choice. So there is one or two vegetarian dishes as well as one or two um, meat dishes at most canteens now. So I think the hospital side of it, and I imagine schools would be like the same, but for individuals, it depends on, I mean, you do see people just buying chips and putting gravy on it and walking out with a takeaway chips and gravy. And this is doctors that might be better off having something more um, healthy in their diet. But a lot of people do that. They just pick and, pick and go the, the, the things that give them gratification, I suppose. But that's the thing, because this is what I was going to ask you. You've got quite a neutral, I would say, relationship with food in that I don't think you have, like when I was younger, I had quite difficult relationship with food. And I think women in general can be more impacted by food. And a lot of people eat for emotion or they eat because they're insecure about their body. But you seem to look at it in a balanced way of what's healthy and well, what's good younger, for me. I could eat anything and I never got uh, overweight and I was always running around doing things. So uh, it, it was it was really fuel and I saw food and if it tasted nice as well, then obviously you'd, as kiddies, you'd go for it. But I mean, we were educated to, to eat greens and everything from young. So we didn't have a problem with, with things that some children won't eat, uh, which is the start of maybe people getting used to veggies when you just get carrots and sprouts or boiled cabbage and if it's all overcooked and soggy then of course it puts them off uh, and they don't then go down that route maybe as much as they might for vegetables. It's interesting because I am just reading a statistic and it said 49% of men aged 45 to 75 don't consider the environmental impact of food and drinks before making a purchase but I would say that from what we've spoken about, it sounds like you actually are quite conscious about it. Like, how how do you feel the climate crisis impacts you? Do you see it as an emergency? Is it something you worry about? Or is it something that you've kind of become accustomed to over the years and perhaps remember fleetingly? How do you feel about it? No, I mean, I think it is a problem in the next decade as to whether you can make changes to prevent this Weather, well, what we think is now climate change and the weather being quite unpredictable and quite um, big swings between, you know, heavy rain and thunderstorms and floods versus hot days. Um, 
when we were growing up, we did have very hot summers, I remember, in the 1970s, uh, and being off long holidays and droughts and things. Um, but I, that's some time ago. But I, I think most people are aware of climate change, but it's a question of whether they can change their lives because they depend on the car or the cheap second-hand car, which belches out more CO2 because they can't afford the new ones, and certainly electric cars, which are being proposed, have some downsides at the moment because producing electricity has a carbon footprint and i don't know if you realize that while we're on this doing audio we're saving carbon if we did a video um, the carbon footprint using all the servers that are needed to transmit this electronically from my computer to yours is a massive carbon footprint that's coming from people using uh, youtube videos and zoom and all those things so you're actually reducing your carbon footprint by only doing an audio with me. I didn't know that until I think someone, maybe it was Matt was telling me the other day, but I didn't never really thought about how all of the streaming services and things that we use actually obviously emit CO2. But how do they, is there any way that you can invent a way that they wouldn't? Well, the thing is you've got to have computers which are generating heat and need energy. So in order to produce the electricity to run them, unless you've got nuclear energy producing it or wind farm energy then the, the energy to produce electricity is coming from uh, an unfriendly environment the unfriendly source if it's coal or oil or gas you see so it depends what the grid is made up of that the electricity is being generated from so it all stems that's why electric cars and overall you know might still although it makes the air cleaner in, in terms of the cities and environment locally uh, I'm not sure what the sums add up to if everything's electric and then you've got to generate all that electricity and have the grids you know, bolstered to manage it. So I don't think it's an easy answer to that. Um, but then also volcanoes can spew out as much damage uh, you know, as, as a year or two of car emissions. I think there's some natural causes as well that you can't um, affect. But in yeah, terms of you know the environment and eating, it's a lot of it is due to the loss of the carbon sink with the denuding of the Amazon and all the stuff going on in those parts of the world. So there's, you might be generating more, but we're also losing capture. Um, mm. Same with digging up the peat bogs. You're losing the carbon trapped in the peat bogs. There's issues around that. So I think it's like anything. It's um, an equation on equilibrium between in and out, and and it's a question of whether you can get the reduction fast enough and or if not replace it with some sort of uh, sponge to remove the the the, the thing and the, the problem with warming is of course the sea is now not um, absorbing as much gas as it used to so that sink is is losing its um, capacity you actually know way more about this than i do <laughs> I suppose being uh, medical, I just read the papers and pick things up from the TV. I, I'm interested in the scientific bits, um, but I haven't sort of... Jerry Tari. Oh, hang on. Let me just um, say I'll ring you, you back. Yeah, that. that's fine. You can do that. Jerry, I'll ring you back in a minute. All right. I'm just on a Zoom. Cheers. Uh, yeah, uh, that's a friend of mine who I said, can you come and use your analyzer on my BMW to see why a couple of bits aren't working so that I can get them fixed? So... Um, He's a local chap that's helped me with my car when I get stuck occasionally. Yeah, that. But well, your—I mean, your worst thing. But that's because you, at the minute, can't afford to buy a new car. But your—how many miles had you done on your old car? Well, no, the 
the BMW before this, from 2001 to 19, I did just over 720,000 miles on it with a couple, admittedly a couple of engine rebuilds when the uh, garage didn't change a radiator once. It did about 350,000 before the engine went, and then I carried on with that until I unfortunately went off the road for some reason, either micro-sleep or hit a bit of dirt and totaled it. And I was on the way to see a patient. I ended up spinning the car, no one behind me, and facing the right way on the hard shoulder. But the bumper was off, the wheels had gone, all the lights had gone, all the corners. So I got uh, relayed. And then Anthony, who died, left me a legacy for this one. So I got this next youngest version of this model, which I like. And I'm saving the planet, you see, because I'm recycling these old cars. So I go to the <laughs> reclamation and raid old cars for bits. So I got bits from my old car that I've had that fit this car. So when I've lost a screw down the back of the engine when I was two in the morning trying to fix it, I could find one upstairs in the mezzanine floor I built. So I'm saving all this money by using all these second-hand parts, you see. Um, but that's that's the thing. Like you, As you said earlier, your car runs on petrol, and that's obviously worse for the environment. But money is yeah. such a big barrier for people to make sustainable changes, whereas I think like, that's that's why swapping something like an oat drink for milk is not as catastrophically um, large to your bank balance as something which, to most people, is you know inconceivably hard like most people will not in this lifetime be able to afford the new electric car that's just not accessible i mean the the obviously the the age group the the demographic you're looking at with me is quite different from your generation which is more likely to make the swap and going forward they're more likely to have an impact if they are going towards electric car or don't even have a car if they're using public transport out with the lockdown and cities or if they're going to be more attuned to having vegetarian type food i don't know whether you think our generation hasn't got enough time left to make a big difference over the 40 to 70 age range or do you think that that is a bigger uh, a bigger effect than i'm thinking if everybody in that age group did it i i think it's about just the the biggest number we can get and that i do think that obviously not everyone but as a generalization, I think that younger people, especially people younger than me, are really engaged in the climate crisis because they've grown up with it feeling so, and also grown up with this idea, like politicians almost say that the younger generations are going to fix it. So you almost feel like the responsibilities on your shoulders. And I think that a lot of younger people might feel as though this issue was made before they were even born and they've been born into a world where now they're kind of lumbered with the responsibility of fixing it. Um, but I what don't percentage think percentage of young people are you talking about you thinking if you take people from their teens to their late twenties, what percentage do you think really engage with this uh, out of the population, and is it class and uh, educational related divide as well in that so it says here that fifty percent of sixteen to twenty four year olds agree that they would consider eating more plant based food product to reduce the environmental impact while only thirty two percent of men aged forty to seventy five would do the same. Um, Why do the ones, you say 60, 60 percent so they No, would. 50% of 16 to 24 year olds. Right, so, why do, do the other way, what's the reason that other 50% don't? Do you have anything from the survey as to why they don't? Is that dependent on where they're from, their ethnic background, their class, their social status? Because 50% is still quite a big gap. Yeah, but it's not as big as 68%. 
<laughs> no, I realise that, but it, it's a big. We've still got to double it, haven't you? Got well, to double I, I think that it would be probably down to all of the things that you said. Definitely, certain certain um, religious or cultural backgrounds will impact how people eat. But I think it's more about looking at the pool of people who one have access, so they've got the education, the privilege in terms of the monetary ability. Um, and then, you know, where they live, where they have access. I do think that living in London, I have so much more access to buying plant-based foods, but I think that's really spreading out across the board now. I think that's changing. I do think there used to be an element of elitism to being able to be sustainable, which I hope is sort of changing as the consumer demands more. I think that before it was such yeah. a... Say, in India, North India, a lot more meat was eaten than the South India, so there are populations that tend to be a bit more skewed historically for but this is again i guess going back to the problem of accessibility because what's happened is years ago you would have eaten things seasonally so for instance you wouldn't i don't even know if you would have had asparagus but now i can buy asparagus all year round whereas it's probably only in season for a few months of the year and i guess with the rise of people flying foods from abroad accessibility to other food those things that would normally have been coming on with the seasons and probably a bit like you're saying where certain areas it's the same in Italy where we go in Italy it's a very mountainous region when I go with Matt and they eat a lot of goat and um like things from the mountains whereas if you go to the places like um what's it called what's the little island Sardinia they just eat fish whereas we don't seem to have that as much in the UK sourcing regional seasonal food, we eat things from all over the place all the time. So it does have to be a conscious sort of unlearning of accessibility. Well, vegetables are seasonal more than animals, you see. That's the problem because if you're breeding animals, then you don't have the same swing in uh, seasons. Yeah, but it's the same with vegetables because you just import them from countries that have them in season at that point in time. Well, I know, but I'm saying that if you didn't have vegetables imported and they weren't growing, then it may. I don't know if it in fact affected the amount of meat you ate in that period because there's nothing else. Oh, yeah. Potatoes, maybe. I'm sure it definitely would, but that's the problem. I think we almost need to go back a bit in how we view food and rather than being like, I can have whatever I want whenever I want it, which I think my generation is more likely to do than you would, for instance. In a funny way, you're much better at eating. Like you said, you buy whatever's on offer. That's actually really good because you're buying up the stuff that might get, go to landfill otherwise, which is sustainable in lots of ways. Um, whereas I might, you know, go and buy an avocado and something else which has been flown over from God knows where and has a bigger carbon footprint. So there is definitely lots of kind of variation in in how you're diet impacts co2 emissions but i think that well, um, the other thing is being single or shopping on your own there's always two of everything i find that a real nuisance so you end up uh, having waste or you end up buying something in a pack of two and freezing it uh, and using it later but there's not enough single products and of course they're all packaged with plastic that you can't open to add to the fun well, that's the thing that I think is going to change because lots of people have been campaigning and they have done, I know in lots of supermarkets now, there is the option. I will always try to buy the option that is not packaged because there's so much plastic. And obviously, I never buy a shopping bag now. Do you always have a reusable shopping bag? Oh, I had a few that I just keep going, even they've got holes in, you know, yeah. until they fall apart. Um, but um, they, they are the, the so-called bags for life. And if they do break, they give you another one. Of course, that's the irony of it. But Paper bags now are being used for vegetables a lot in the supermarkets. So you're a bit like the Americans when you think, what, well, they're walking around with these funny square paper bags with stuff no handles. on the top. Yeah, and that's right. Um, so I think that that is a change that's coming. And to be honest, the 5 Fiona bag stopped a lot of people buying them because psychologically yeah. it had a big impact. 
that's a really interesting though, isn't it? It really has an impact on me. I never want to buy a bag. So I often will walk home and have to ring the doorbell with my nose because I'm carrying everything with my hands and I can't open the door. Well, I won't, I won't, if I go into the shop and I've not brought a bag and it's in the boot, did you want a bag? If I can carry it on the top of the Times newspaper rolled up and carry the milk under the other hand with everything under the arm and manage to open the car door, then I won't get a bag. I'll just take the chance I can get it to the car without dropping eggs on the floor or something. So, that, yeah, I did that today. In fact, I forgot my mask and they had a mask in Waitrose they could give me because I changed, you know, between the cars and that and I didn't have it with me. But I think uh, people are averse to little changes. So if you see a penny off petrol, you'll drive probably the cost of the petrol <laughs> to save the money that you're spending to get there sometimes. So I think mm-hmm. certain things logically have an impact on people. Uh, you've just got to know which buttons to press um, as to what will make people change their mind. So whether it's people th- thinking ahead for their future generations uh, as a means of trying to get people motivated to change, I don't know. So uh, do you but, think that you felt, do you feel now that maybe you would consider like with mum for instance thinking about doing a meet free day on a weekend like do you think that maybe it is something that you would I'd be happy to do that yeah yeah I mean I don't mind having a vegetable lasagna or you know or a salad mix lots of nice um you know nuts and bits and pieces in it Waldorf or whatever um possibly with a bit of fish occasionally with it or something like that and there are times we do that, but other times we we will have you know bacon, eggs, beans, and uh, and mushrooms and whatever as a brunch, and you'll still do that. But I I think it's just a question of I'm only home a couple of days a week now with mum away, so she tends to want to cook something. That maybe she's not eaten much in the week on her own, so it mm. tends to be more her choice of what she wants to eat. But I think that's fine also having your special meals because, for instance, Matt and I do a roast every weekend and that always means having either a chicken or some pork or lamb. And so you are having a big cut of meat. But that becomes – this is another thing I imagine just quickly that I remember mum saying this is I guess when you were growing up, meat was way more luxury. And this is how I've tried to start shopping with meat is thinking I'm going to get a really nice piece of meat and we're going to have that on Sunday rather than you can buy these. Sunday roast, yeah. But would would meat have been much more of a luxury back then? Because I feel like now you can get such cheap cuts of meat that you it, you could have a steak every day. You can buy those pound pound steaks from Sainsbury's, or whatever, and that yeah, changes. I don't people's. think we had expensive meat. No, I think we had a lot of eggs was growing up, and we had probably minced meat with a lot of stuff and chicken a lot. But I, I don't remember actually having steaks except when Dad came back from America or anything. What we'd have termed you know expensive then. It would have been. <laughs> shoulders of lamb or, or, or sausages you know things that were not um in themselves that expensive and you could get five children fed with them quite easily i don't mean expensive i mean did was meat more of a luxury in those days than people view it now because people are quite throwaway about food because you can you can kind of get a lot of things a lot easier do you think that yeah, are- yeah i don't i'm not sure my i don't get the feeling that when we were growing up because my parents had come through the the sort of war and the rationing and it had been decades or so since. So as we grew up, I think dad's income was such that they could get a reasonable balanced diet, um, you know, f- for the five of us, even even though we had free school meals and free school milk. Um, I don't remember being lacking in anything, but then it was whatever we ate was quite normal then, so probably mm-hmm. our peer group. 
so we weren't struggling but we didn't do any exotic stuff you know like avocado smashed avocados and all that sort of thing yeah well I think that that's I think that perhaps one of the things that my generation need to do is look at certain foods as more of a luxury so not necessarily buy an avocado every day because you've got to look at the sort of mileage that that's come from and then the small changes that your generation could be is you know cutting down as you do on your lunches and maybe having oatly instead of milk because I think let me find the statistics on milk it says that um so the UK produces 15 billion liters of milk per year and the average Brit consumes 70 liters of milk a year so that's roughly 1.4 liters a week um and then oat oat drink oatly on the other hand generates 73 percent less co2 than cow's milk I mean there needs to be a driver to to motivate the big companies to to see it not as profit mm. from uh, those sort of food same with alcohol you know and the high markup and the profit they can get from that so i think it's got to be driven by the carrot on the pun of economics as yeah. well as the stick of, um, of the downside of health and climate change effects well i think that you made a good point there which is what i always come back to as well as i think that the small sustainable swaps like the things that i've made like getting a veg subscription box which i actually think saves money because you don't have any veg waste and drinking oatly and having like you do a vegetarian lunch i think that's amazing but fundamentally a lot of those changes need to come from legislation and that's where i think the government's really failing us because you know if there was a way of implementing better change for people so they had access to buying the correct things with the education we wouldn't have to be so down on the individual, which I think is what's wrong and corrupt a lot of the time. Well, you know that, of course, there's lobbying by big companies to to affect the laws made in the country, everywhere in the world, in fact. So lobbying by big in, big companies, big industry, uh, would have to change because that influences decision-making at the top. So I yeah. think uh, global warming is probably having a, an impact in people's psyche uh, but it's still got inertia in the decision making. But having said that, there's dates now for when we're meant to go all electric if they can get the infrastructure there, uh, and and there are moves to reduce, you know, the type of aeroplanes that produce more CO2 than currently do and getting less. So the trouble is the time it takes to reskill and re rejig industry mm. to meet the volumes. But with individuals. Um, it's a question of our people in their echo chambers on Facebook or, or Twitter and not looking outside and how you change that. Because if people aren't aware, then how do you educate them to change or what's going to make them change? And that's probably the difficult bit. If you could get a platform and an influencer such as yourself maybe at your age group, but I don't know how many people in my age group will be influenced by listening to podcasts or going on to Twitter or Facebook. Um, well it's funny you say that because this campaign by Oatly is called Help Dad um, and they've actually got the website, Let me. it's oatly.com forward slash help dad and on there they have statistics, tips and like uh, recipes and things and it's a bit tongue in cheek Help Dad, it's just a bit of a joke but the point is that me and you having this conversation will hopefully, hopefully encourage everyone listening that if they've never well, broached this subject. Some of my lockdown meals for them to look at. Oh my God, you can, you can definitely, I mean, I put them on my story and everyone thought it was hilarious, but. Well, I think, some, look, some look nice, some don't look nice, but they taste fine. Well, it's just that I don't often plate them up like Jamie Oliver. I just put them on the plate when it's done because I'm on my own and whatever. But to be fair, I'm actually very impressed with um, 
how good you are. I wasn't expecting you to, and you're very knowledgeable. So this was um, actually a lot easier chat. I wasn't sure if you were going to be resistant to it, but it sounds like you're actually very open-minded when it comes to... Oh, no, I'm not topics. resistant. And I haven't challenged you on topics that you do your other podcasts on. So I'm giving you an easy ride here. Oh, well, thanks very much for that. So th- basically, it's funny you said that because the idea is that me about how your generation would find out obviously people of my generation listen to the podcast so the Oatly concept is that after us talking about it our generation can then go away and talk to the people in our lives who perhaps because I do think social media is a massive driver in social change and that a lot of the things that I've learned about um, social systems or racism or feminism have come from listening to other people online and I, I do think that your demographic obviously doesn't have that same level of interaction with you know, certain social movements via Instagram and things like that. So maybe it needs to be an intergenerational conversation in the home or around the dinner table or on Zoom. Yeah, well, of course, historically, people might just watch the telly and there was only two or three stations to watch. Now with Netflix and other things and all the choices you have, uh, I don't know whether people and less adverts depending on what you're getting you don't get so many adverts now the adverts were negative in a sense pushing mm-hmm. towards the bad options but whether people are watching things and avoiding adverts because the technology you can actually cut them out you probably won't get through the, the those sort of channels that you used to in the old day and not many people read newspapers like we do now in the same way so it is it's all based on social media probably and maybe a few influences on telly or these food programs might have an effect but I'm not sure how big that is I think that definitely Twitter for me is where I get most of my news because you get like a culmination then of everyone showing different different articles from almost every newspaper and I feel like it's quite well-rounded rather than I've never bought a physical newspaper I don't think have you gone on to Wikipedia I don't use it but that's a source where people put a lot of information on onto Wikipedia has got a big following whether something on that I don't think with generate, but I think that Wikipedia also it's not for profit. I think they're done by they don't have advertising, but they also can be edited by anyone. So Wikipedia is not that reliable because anyone can go onto a Wikipedia page and edit it. But then people correct it and put references. So, but it is hard work to pick out. Yeah, you know, I imagine. But I think the majority of people get information through sharing I think the most impactful way to learn is always through someone that you respect or know or talk about like we've had quite heated discussions at Christmas time about difficult discussions and I think that that can change minds yes I I think uh, talking and understanding different viewpoints and not being in a bubble is probably the only way to break the cycle and education and finance I think are the the two key things that are going to change large sections of society. And the the financial bit has really got to be sorted first, I think, Mm. um, because people are trying to make ends meet uh, and time pressures and two people working. um, And now you've got the extra burden of homeschooling if you've got children and everything else. It's even more difficult. Yeah, I agree. Well, this has been such a good chat, Dad. I'm really pleased that you came on. I actually feel like I've learned more from you than you have from me. Well, I hoped I'd been alive a bit longer. I might have picked up a few tips. So So when are we going to be expecting your cookbook then? Well, I'll have to work on it when I'm not too tired. Yes, I I started the first chapter, but I've I've got lots of pictures, but I'll have to work (laughs) on it and uh, see if I can come out with something. Well, we will But meanwhile, I've got a finished picture in the car. (laughs) 
Oh yeah, well we'll pay for the car. Hopefully that does fit because you'll be really upset if that doesn't. But um, thank yeah. you so much for joining me. Did you have a fun time? Yeah, no, I enjoyed it. Thank you. And uh, you've done very well with your recent uh, sojourn on BBC Two and other things. So your name gets dropped by me occasionally when I say, "Do you ever listen to a podcast?" and say <laughs> your name. So some people uh, might be picking up more than you think. So uh, you might you might get more interest than you expect from different sources. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. So, time for supper. Thank you, everyone, for listening as well. You've got to say bye now. Bye. All right. Bye bye, everybody. <laughs>